You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Onyx Maps. Now, Onyx is a digital mapping app that you download directly to your phone, mobile device, and you can even use it on your desktop. But what is great about it, the functionality here, is that you can drop waypoints and you can mark tree stand locations. You can mark trail camera locations, scrapes, rubs, bedding areas. You can document all that. So it's like a living journal of your properties that you hunt. Now, what's great about this, it can be used on a small scale, let's say like a 40 acre farm, or like we did on our mule deer hunt out west, this 33,000 acre uh, big chunk of public ground. It can allow you to document everything that you've seen on there as well, glassing points where the mule deer were coming in and out and so much more. If you want to find out more about the functionality of Onyx, visit onyxmaps.com. Com. And for first-time users, you can use the discount code NATION20 for 20% off. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast uh, brought to you by Vortex Optics. Today's a big day. We got uh, someone I really look up to on this episode it's mark kenyon of wired to hunt you know him uh he's been on the uh, podcast before i'm the co-host of the wired to hunt podcast and (laughs) this is a funny story because i thought this was going to be episode 700 and i got all fired up about it it's a big deal 700 episodes so i go to my platform where i host all of my episodes all my podcasts And I see that when I transferred from one platform to the new platform that I'm in, I think there was some kind of glitch or ordering uh, failure or something like that. And instead of what I thought was 700 episodes, which seems high, but not crazy because I put out a lot of content, it's only episode 471. So... Congratulations, Mark Kenyon, on this momentous occasion of episode 471. I was only off by over 250 episodes, but uh, nonetheless, this is going to be a kick-ass episode, and uh, we do have Mark on today, and we're going to talk 
about a whole bunch of different things. And most of it, to be honest with you, is not hunting related. We're going to talk about his process on how he wrote his book, uh, how he handles failure in life, how he handles adversity, self-doubt, the haters, all these things we cover in this episode. So it's kind of a curveball for you guys today. And we talk about something other than hunting. And uh, I really like episodes like this where, you know, it's fun to talk about Uh, you know, hunting and strategy and all that stuff. But I also love to talk about what makes people tick, right? And how they handle failure and what they do to come out of a, you know, a bad situation. And we talk a lot about that today. So, you know, I'm going to stop rambling really, and we're going to get into it. But before we do, we got to do a commercial and that's lone wolf tree stands. And I'll tell you what, this, uh, this rut, I bounced all over the place. In my 13 days of hunting, I only sat two trees for three different hunts. So uh, what I do is I'll I'll rotate through a whole bunch of different uh, places on the farm that I feel are good. If it's a really good spot, I'll leave the platform up and I'll take down my sticks. So the next time that I run and gun into this area, the only thing that I'm doing is setting up my sticks. And then I'll cycle through all these tree stands. So I'll find the good spots where I feel the deer are moving through. I'll rotate in and out of these spots and cycle them in with other good tree stand uh, locations. Of course, it's all based off of wind and access routes. And uh, so the, the lone wolf tree stand really allows me to be mobile. And that's how I get the job done right? I don't have food plots. Uh, We had a big problem with standing corn this year, so I had to go find the deer, uh, and uh, they weren't in their traditional travel patterns. They weren't in their traditional bedding areas. They they were kind of dispersed all over the place, so first I had to go find them, and uh, I did that by being as mobile as possible. So if you want to find out more information about lone wolf tree stands, please go to lonewolfhuntingproducts.com and if you do decide to purchase enter the discount code 9FC50 and you will save $50 on all orders over $200 that's a pretty good that's a pretty good deal let's see a, a tree stand is like 225 250 uh, put that in and now you got uh, you're way closer to $200 on one of these tree stands so uh That uh, makes kind of a big difference, 20% off roughly. So uh, take that into consideration for maybe a a Christmas gift to yourself or a Christmas gift to a friend or uh, like my grandpa did one time, he bought my grandma a pitchfork for their anniversary. And of course, she never used it. It was for him to clean the barn out. Uh, So he was the only one who used it. So buy a, a tree stand for your wife. And then when she doesn't use it, then you can use it. So, all right, let's get into episode 471 with my buddy, Mark Kenyon. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. My name is Dan Johnson. I'm your host. And today I have a very special guest, someone that uh, I really look up to, uh, someone that uh, I know and who has become a friend over uh, the several years that we've known each other. Mr. Mark Kenyon, how the hell are you, man? Hey, hey, I'm doing good. Excited to be here. Excited to be on the podcast on such a momentous occasion, too. Yeah, 
Yeah, this is episode 471. And, That's nuts. Uh, I know, right? And it's just, and it doesn't even feel like that. And what I, what I will say is that when I, when I can say it doesn't feel like I've done 471, doesn't feel tedious, it doesn't feel like work, then I feel at the same time to be grateful and happy because I love doing this. I love talking to the industry people. I love talking to the quote unquote experts. And I love probably most of all talking to the guys that are working 40 plus hours a week, the guys who are successful, the guys who are going out and hunting similar to the way that I hunt and, and, uh, that I can relate to and have the kids, the, the problems. And, and, uh, so it, it just, it doesn't even seem like 700. And, uh, I think that's a good thing. You know what I don't like? What? I, I don't like the fact that you don't work in a miserable cubicle anymore and have these <laughs> terrible woe is me stories that you would share every Monday morning. Oh, <laughs> I really yeah. got I really got some good laughs out of the <laughs> cubicle Dan Johnson. <laughs> yeah. That guy was a son of a bitch though. Cubicle Dan Johnson was an asshole. Uh and I'll I'll tell you what, I mean, and we're gonna talk about a little bit about all these things today. And to to be honest uh with you, and like I talked to you a little bit before we started recording, like, I feel like this episode, we should step away from the hunting talk, the hunting strategy, because there is more to the path that we have chosen uh, in life that has, has led us to where we are currently at. And uh, I want to talk about a lot of that stuff. I want to talk about uh, your book in particular, because that doesn't seem easy, right? If uh, mm-hmm. what you've done... I, I kind of, I always say, what would I do if I was in a position like that? What would I do if I had to, to write a book? And I just, the first thing that pops into my head is a children's book, is writing a children's book with pictures and coloring and like, Dougie sat on a log with his bow, turn the page, Dougie saw the deer turn the page like like that that simple like, that does sound like a, a good fit for you dan right right more pictures than words more pictures than Import, words. important stuff though kids need need books too right right so let's talk about this book once because yeah. i am a huge fan of process and that's what i did uh at my old job and i feel that if you can get a process down a good process, you can be successful at anything you decide to do. If you're organized and you, you follow a certain path and you stick to that path. And if the path may, may seem broken, you fix the path before you move forward. So let's talk, let's talk about this book, um, a little bit, because I want to know, first off, what what was the time frame when this idea popped into your head when you were like, dude, I want to write a book? So that has been in my head for a while. Um, probably soon after I started, you know, my career within outdoor writing, even early on in those days, I think it was maybe once I was able to transition to doing this full time. So back in 13, I was writing for hunting magazines and I was running the podcast and wired to hunt and all that. I think that's when I realized that, okay, 
you are an okay writer. I love books. Uh, maybe someday you could do something like that. So yeah. I think that's when it started popping in my mind. And then I dabbled with the ideas or I dabbled with what, what kind of book would I write? That was going through my mind for a few years, exploring a couple different topics. Um, but the long story short of it is that yeah, 2014, 2015 was right when our hunting and fishing community started becoming aware of some of this controversy around public lands and the idea of transferring or selling them. That's when I started becoming aware of like, oh, wow, there's people trying to get rid of these places that I love so much that I've been blessed to be able to spend a ton of time in. Um, and as I started wrapping my head around what was going on, I realized that there were just so many people that had no clue. They had no clue about what was currently going on, that had no clue how we got to this point, how we even even that we had a whole lot of public lands. I I mean people, your average guy or girl on the street usually knows that oh we you know there's Yellowstone National Park and there's Yosemite National Park and maybe they know about the park down the street. Um, but most people don't know that we have you know, 640 some million acres of federal public lands and millions of other acres of state lands and all these things that come in all these different forms. There's wilderness areas and national forests and Bureau of Land Management and national wildlife refuges and all this kind of stuff. And, and in the hunting community, there's a certain segment of our population that, that does know about this stuff because of the, the great work that people like you or folks like Randy Newberg or Steve Ranella or, or, writers for Outdoor Life and Field and Stream have been sharing that story over the last few years. Um, but I, I recognize that there was an information gap uh, still for the average person across the country, especially if you didn't live right in the middle of these places. So if you lived in Bozeman, Montana, you might know a whole lot more than someone who lived in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, so back in 15, 16, I realized, wow, I think um, – I think maybe I should try to write a book about this. I'm spending a ton of time in these places. I'm personally trying to learn about the history of these places. Like, how did we get to this point? How do we get these lands? Who are the people that stood up for them? And why is there such a controversy around them still today? So as I was trying to figure that out on my own, I realized maybe I should just try to share what I'm learning about in a book. And so started that process in 2015 and 16 with trying to get a book agent and trying to put together what's called a book proposal, which is like a big 50, 60 page document outlining everything about the book, about your marketing plan, about the storyline, about the outline, about the chapters, about the competition and what the demographic, what the market is for that kind of book, a whole lot of stuff like that. Um, so that was going on in like 2016 and 17. And then it was trying to get that book proposal sold to a publisher. And so that was taking place in late 2017. And then I got a book deal. And then all through 2018, early 2019, um, was actually writing it all. Um, but then the trips that are featured in this book were going on from 2015 through 2018. So I was out there doing these things taking notes and, and writing quick things throughout the experience and then doing the actual writing of the real book throughout most of 18 and, and early 2019. So I guess that's a very long roundabout way of saying I've been thinking about this and working on this for a long time. Yeah. Um, and like you said, it's been a hell of a process. So in that, in that process, right. Uh, I almost feel, and this is just me assuming at this point that 
coming up with a concept and putting together that 40 or 50 page book proposal is equally or even more difficult than the actual writing of the book. How, how did, what was your opinion on that? What's your, I take? would say, I would say the writing of the book was still the most difficult, but okay. the book proposal was still a really heavy lift and a lot more than I assumed. I thought it'd be a really easy, you know, all right, here's the idea for the book. These are the main things I want to talk about. This is who I am. Uh, um, and I thought it'd be that easy. And, and no, I mean, it took half a year or something like that just to get that proposal put together and changed and updated and to the place where we needed it to be. Um, so that was, that was a lot of work. And that, that kind of prepared me though for the heavy lifting of actually writing a book and all the research that has to go into a book like this and trying to then distill all that research down into what are the core few things I want to write about and how do you take hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of books and things I've listened to and things I've looked at and try to combine it down to a story that makes sense and then weave that into my own personal experiences. And that, I mean, that was, that was a challenge. Um, so really the book proposal helped. It's almost like training for an elk hunt. I feel like the book proposal was the summer leading into the elk hunt. So I got to, I was out there training. I was, I was running, I was, carrying the heavy pack. I was finding out for the first time what it was going to take to do a hunt like this, to do a project like this. Um, and then writing the book was like going on an elk hunt, but the elk hunt lasted 18 months or something like that. <laughs> Just nonstop suffer fest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what, what is your mindset when you sit down to do a project like this? Because, it's tedious. You said it took 18 months to write the book, right? I mean, just the actual like writing. The writing, writing of yeah. the book, right, 18 months. Yeah. So the, the process took longer, but the actual sitting down and writing a book, um, and I take it you're going off notes and you're going off that, that book proposal that highlights everything. When you actually sit down to write it, like what's that process look like? I just I just see, you know, because you always talk about you – uh, paralysis from analysis when you're trying to choose a tree stand to go hunt. Did you, right. did you suffer any of that about how to write uh, a certain paragraph or how to write a chapter? Oh yeah. All sorts of, all sorts of things like that for sure. Um, there's, there's this book. I don't know if you've ever read it, but if you hadn't, Dan, you have to, you're going to love it. It's called the war of art. Have you read the war of art? I have not read the war of art. Pick it up. It's by Stephen Pressfield. It'll change your life. It's right up your alley. Um, and he, he talks all about the challenges that we face as creators, as doers, as I mean, it could be related to you could be an entrepreneur. You could be a podcaster, a writer, an artist, uh, anyone who's trying to do something meaningful in this world. And he talks about this f kind of force and he labels it. He calls it resistance. But resistance is basically just the <clears throat> That feeling you get when you wake up on Monday morning and maybe you're just not feeling it today and you're struggling to get the energy to go to the table and, and start recording the podcast. Or it's that feeling you get when you pull up the blank word processor document and I have to start on chapter one and I just see the blinking cursor and it's, ah, uh, I just don't even know how to start. I don't know what the right word should be. I Like you said, paralysis by analysis. There's a million things I need to get out there. Where do I start? And then you, you know. 
in that moment, it's, it's easy to pull up Instagram. So I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll just look at Instagram for two minutes. And then you go back to it and you're thinking, okay, now what do I do? And then it's, I, I just think I need a cup of coffee. And then you go get a cup of coffee and then you come back and you type a few words and you're like, oh, I remember I need to buy something on Amazon. I'll go to Amazon and you go find something else. So it's basically writing, taking a project like this is, is that level of resistance amplified by 10,000. You know, anytime you sit down to write an article or you sit down to, write the notes for your podcast or whatever. There's going to be distractions. There's going to be some degree of like a, a mental block or um, writer's block. There's going to be all these things that just make it hard to get something on paper. So for me, my process had to be, I had to start with building blocks, just get something out. There's this idea of like getting a shitty first draft out. Um, just, just the process of putting something on paper and this is the same thing as just the process of getting a project started you know getting a podcast built maybe you don't know how to build how to do a podcast maybe you're intimidated by making something that's interesting but just getting some kind of first step done and then a second step done you get the snowball effect you start building momentum so the first step's always the hardest sitting down in the morning and giving yourself a dedicated two hours to work on your book or whatever the hardest thing is sitting down and getting focused. Yeah. Once you write the first sentence, it's a whole lot easier to write the second. And then it's a lot easier to work on that second paragraph. And once you have two paragraphs, it's easier to get three. Um, so always the challenge is, is getting into it and, and getting something out there, getting that shitty first draft out. So I would always start with, okay, you know, I have a, I have a high level outline. So what I did basically, I'll, I'll kind of give you the exact process I followed to write this book at a high level. I had my chapters broken down by uh, topic and location. So basically the book is about two-thirds of it is examining the history of our public lands. All the things that happened starting in the 1800s all the way up till most recently into like the, the 90s and early 2000s. Like what happened? Who were the people that got us these places? What were the fights that revolved around these locations? Um, so there's this history element. And then that is – intertwined with my own personal adventures out on public lands, uh, usually in some kind of location that is relevant to the topic. So there's a chapter that talks about the era of Theodore Roosevelt, all the things he did. And so while I'm telling the historical narrative of, of how he did so much for public lands, I'm al also out there exploring Theodore Roosevelt National Park and the North Dakota Badlands, which is this area that was incredibly influential on Theodore Roosevelt, and he spent a ton of time out there hunting and exploring and ranching and all this stuff. So I had these two parallel narratives for each section of the book. So I, I mapped that out, said, okay, this chapter is going to be about Theodore Roosevelt in the late 1800s and early 1900s, and it's going to happen in the Badlands. And then I would then break down these two narratives. So I thought, okay, here's the trip I took. Me and Furter went to North Dakota, and we shed hunted, and we explored these places. What were the main things that happened there? So I'm building an outline, like the main points. And then I look at the history of that era with Theodore Roosevelt. I broke down an outline. Okay, here are the most important things. This is after I've read 15 books and I've read a bajillion articles and I've listened to all these different documentaries. And as I did all those things, I'm taking notes and notes and notes and notes and notes. So then I go and I look at those notes and I pull out, okay, these are the 10 most important points from that history, like 
this big thing. Like Theodore Roosevelt started the Boone and Crocker Club. And the Boone and Crocker Club did ABC. That's a really important thing we have to talk about. So I write that down. And then I wrote down, okay, Theodore Roosevelt, when he became president, he immediately started setting aside national forests. And so much so that a group of businessmen pressured uh, a select group of senators to pass an amendment that would keep Theodore Roosevelt from ever being able to make national forests again without congressional approval. So that's a really important thing. So I picked out these moments. And once I had that outline then, it was just a matter of then trying to get shitty words on paper. So that was always the hardest part was getting that crappy first draft out where basically I would just write the worst sounding, lamest, simple sentences explaining the stuff I wanted to say just so there was like a framework there. So there was something. And then after doing that for hours and hours and days and days and days and days, then you'd have this like vomit first draft. And then I could go back and start to fine tune and and add color and add and take away, cut away the fat. I can flesh things out. I can tweak. I can maneuver. I can adjust. And so, I mean, it would take weeks and weeks for any given chapter like this doing this process just to get the stuff out. And then to fine tune and make it readable and make it interesting and make it entertaining. Um, And so that process for me, like I said, was over a year. And because this was going on top of my day job, right? My regular day job is running Wired to Hunt, running the podcast, writing articles, doing all that kind of stuff. To get this book done, uh, I had to figure out a way to do it on top of all that. And this is also, by the way, happening right when my son was born. So... I was getting up at 3.30 or 4 in the morning, working on the book until 7.30 or 8, then doing the day job from 7.30 till 5, and then I would try to help out around the house until we put my son down for bed, and then from 8 o'clock till midnight or something, I would keep working on the book. And I was doing that for day after day after day after day after day, um, especially the, the final... I don't know, five months or four months before the book was due. It was like that every day. Um, was working Christmas Day, was working New Year's Eve, was working New Year's Day. I just, I, I had to keep on grinding to try to get it done. Um, so I realized I probably got more granular than you wanted. Sorry about that. Um, but point being is you had to find somewhere to start. You had to push through that resistance. You had to get some kind of plan in place, which for me was that outline. And then just like start, just chip away a little bit here, a little bit there. That was my shitty first draft. Just get something out there and then build from that. Get something out here the next day and build from that. Um, And doing that day after day, even though on any given day, I might not get a whole ton done on any specific day. Or maybe I get something done, but it's crappy. At least getting some progress made would build off of that the next day. And you'd build off that the next day. And, And lo and behold, six months later or a year later, you have something tangible. Right. Um, and that's kind of the, the, the method, I think, to any kind of success with a project, whether that's writing a book or starting a podcast or starting a business or anything like that. It's, it's, it's kind of just that simple and just that hard. <laughs> yeah. So in order to get into the swing of things, let's say on now on a daily basis, did you find yourself uh, getting into a routine where, it, where even as the micro details, right? Let's talk about, uh, you know, for me, I wake up, I grab a cup of coffee, I get my kids dressed, I, you know, you, you step by step by step, you do all these little things until the point that leads you to sitting down and creating, right? Did, did you have a, a specific routine that you would go through every single day? Or did your schedule not allow that? 
as much as possible, I tried to have a routine. There were definitely some schedule things that made it wonky. Uh, I mean, some of this stuff was happening while I was traveling across the country, living out west out of our camper one year. Um, so during some of those times, you couldn't. But especially the final few months, the final three or four months when it was nonstop, you know, this had to get done. Um, yes, I was getting up, like I said, like 3.30 or 4. I would sneak past my son's room to the kitchen. I would get the cup of coffee. I'd slip, I'd slip right into the office then, and I would take 15, 20 minutes just to kind of wake up, drink my cup, um, do some reading, and then I even listened to like the same musical artist when I was writing. I finally, I found like there was this, there's this one artist. It's a weird, a weird artist, I guess. But for you whatever have to reason, share it, dude, you have to share who it is because I'm a, I love music. You're not. You're, I mean, you're probably not gonna like. It. It's like a weird, like British pop band. <laughs> you would be surprised what I like. Okay, it's called. They're called the 1975. The 1975. Okay, I'm gonna. The 1975. Um, and it's just like weird, poppy, modern, slightly electro, slightly 80s throwback British music. And I don't know why, but they were just my jam and I would throw it on on repeat and I would just it would just kind of go in the background and I would be in my zone. And I'd also I had another writing playlist that had some more like ambient type stuff or a band called Sigur Ross. You ever heard of that? Nope. It's, it's another European. They're out of uh, Sweden or somewhere like that. S-I-G-U-R-O-R-O-S. Okay. Sigur Ross. And that's like no words, just really – kind of crazy ethereal ambient music um but yeah it, just some kind of weird ambient type music was kind of what would get me in my zone and then i would have this one light on which was kind of a soft yellow light i need my office desk like really clean and organized most of the time it's not i wish it was but um i kind of can get cluttered pretty quickly but when i sat down to write i needed stuff just so and i'd have a bottle of water and my cup of coffee i'd turn the music on i'd turn that light on i'd have the space heater running in the winter like we were talking about earlier <laughs> and and then it was okay here we go just get something done just make progress and something that i found helpful um and I, I don't know if this is this is something a lot of people can relate to or not but it's really easy for me to fall prey to that quote unquote resistance I talked about earlier. So you'll get to a tough section or you'll get to a point you're like, I don't know, I don't like the way this sounds or I don't know what to say or this is tough to try to make sense of this. And then you, you, I'll just grab my phone. You look at your phone for five minutes and then you work for a little bit and then you go back to your phone or you go back to something else. So the two things I did there is I would try to most of the time physically put my phone on the other side of the room just had to keep distraction as far away as possible. Um, and then secondly, I'd also do timed exercises where I would say, okay, you have to work for 30 minutes or 60 minutes and you're not going to have one distraction, nothing else. You're not going to look at your email. You're not going to look at Facebook. You're not going to take a second and go pee. You're going to do nothing. You're going to sit and you are going to write. And every time you have that urge to be distracted, you're going to say, nope, I have to wait till the alarm goes off. And so I'd set a timer, an alarm on my phone for 30 minutes or 60 minutes and just go and go and go. And just simply having that period where you're telling yourself, All right, I got to stay 100% focused for this half hour. And then I'll allow myself to take a five minute break. And then I'll do 30 minutes of unbroken. That It's amazing what you can do when you force yourself not to have any distractions at all. 
it's 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 kind of impossible to say, oh, I'm going to be focused 100% all day, and that no one can do that, or at least I can't do that. So by breaking it up into these chunks that you timed, that put some kind of constraint around you, it allowed me to to make much more meaningful progress without getting lured away by this distraction of that. Um, but then finding time to allow myself, okay, here's my hour break. Now I can, or here's my break after my hour. I can go get more water, coffee. I can look at my phone for a couple minutes and then go back and have that deep work period. Um, so that was something that helped. That was a piece of my process and part of my routine that helped me actually make progress. Cause there's, there's so many times throughout, you know, when you've got this, it's this book, it's like a daunting, huge thing in front of you. You have to somehow do and put together. And, and the interesting thing with a book is that you put together this big proposal that says, hey, I'm going to write this book. It's going to be 300 pages. It's going to be 15 chapters. It's going to talk about this and this and this and this and this and this and this. When you get a book deal, the way a book deal works is they pay you what's called an advance. So they basically say, okay, we agree that you are going to write this book for us. It's going to be about this, this, and this. We're going to pay you X amount of dollars up front. And then you have to write the book over the next year or whatever. And then you owe them that book. So it's really interesting in that you get paid up front some portion of it, but you haven't done the work yet. So there's this crazy pressure like, oh my gosh, I actually have to do this thing now. And if I don't, I have to pay them back for all this money or whatever is going to go on. Um, so there's this huge pressure of, you know, you owe this back to the publishing company. You can't falter. You can't be delayed. You have to somehow build this big thing. You just promised someone you were going to do. Um, and so for me, it was, it was, it was intimidating sometimes. So I would have to just remind myself, it's the stupid cliche uh, saying, but how do you eat a, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? So I just try to take a little bite and a little bite here and a little bite there and a little bite here and every day just tiny bit, tiny bit and, and that would grow and grow and grow. But if I ever sat down and tried to think like, oh wow, I have to write a 300 page book that someone's actually going to find interesting and helpful, um, that'll kind of freeze you up because how do you do that? I don't know how to write a 300-page book, but I did know how to write a paragraph, and I did know how to, okay, today I'm going to write two pages. I could do that, um, and that's kind of the mindset I took into it. So you have a child, and you have a wife, and you have other responsibilities outside of this book, um, and this is where I find myself in in a lot, actually, and you're, you're on a roll. Right. You know, I'm, I'm, I've sat, I've been at my desk for an hour. I'm in it right now. I'm in a zone, you know, I'm, uh, working, I'm creating, I'm getting my job done. And then the door opens and, uh, knocks pooped on the floor or, you know, like it's just <laughs> an extreme halt to the, the zone. How did you, how did you handle that or redirect that? Yeah, definitely something that was a challenge for me. Um, especially with, with, for me writing, there's nothing that takes more mental focus and energy than writing. Mm -hmm. Um, like absolutely have to be in the zone, uh, to make stuff make sense and to be able to be critically thinking. And, um, it takes me time to get into it and it's takes a lot of time to get back into it if you get distracted. So maybe once you start, you know, it's not going to be till 15, 20, 30 minutes or something till you're really in the flow and things are going. And then if you get distracted by knock on the door or whatever, then it's going to take 15, 30 minutes to get back into it or whatever. And if that happens enough, you never actually get anything really real done. So 
Number one, I did what I mentioned earlier, which was as much as I could be working before the family was awake or after the family went to bed. That was always the best time. That was when I knew like, okay, that's when I'm going to get my quality stuff. So a lot of really early mornings, a lot of really late nights, not a lot of sleep, a lot of coffee. Um, I tried to, I, I did a better job during that period of exercising in a kind of weird way, but I would just do like body weight exercises every morning, um, in my office because it was something that got me going. I got my blood pumping a little bit, but I could do it in such a way that I wasn't making noise in the main part of the house or having to go outside and open and close the door uh, to go for a run, uh, because that would wake our, I'd get our dogs barking. If the dogs got barking, that would wake up the, my son, um, so I was just trying to do whatever I could as far away from my sleeping son as I possibly could um, to just get up and going. So that was a big thing. But I won't tell you that it wasn't a challenge to try to get stuff done during the middle of the day because um, I work from home. My wife works from home and we're also trying to watch our son while we're home. So there were times when I was having to be watching my son while also trying to get my regular day job work done while also trying to get this kind of stuff done. Um and so that caused, you know, some challenges, definitely the working late in the evenings, you know, when my wife was awake or when my son was awake, I would have to do that sometimes. And that created a balance issue. You know, that was tough. I know for my wife to have to take on a bigger burden there because I was working on this. And I think what, what we've tried to establish within our family, and we, we talked about this in the wired hunt podcast the other day, I don't always get it right. Um, but there's sort of this idea of, of seasons of the year. Literally, there's like the hunting season, but then there's just different seasons of your life where you have this ebb and flow of of work, this ebb and flow of availability and 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 what your time looks like. And so for us, my I was talking to my wife and I said, hey, this is a season, right? This four months is crazy. I know that. I'm going nonstop. This is I know this is tough for you. This is tough for me. But it's a season. We're going to get through this. We're going to kind of hunker down and push through the tough time. But once we get to January, then it's going to be a big weight off of our shoulders. And I'm going to have a lot more time to spend with you and Everett, a lot more time to be able to do things and help out. And so then when I have that season of, of off time, a slightly lesser season, then I just need to dive in that much deeper to uh, with my family to make up for the time when I, I wasn't able to give them as much time as I would have wanted. So, you know, January through September through August, it was family, 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 family trips, do this kind of thing, do the things they're excited about, spend, um, put as much time as I can towards that as I was towards my book, you know, five months pr previous to that. Um, same thing during hunting season. You know, we went through this two, two to three month period here during hunting season where I'm so, so busy, but once we get to about this week now, um, my hunting pulls back dramatically and instead spending a lot more time with the family. So last weekend didn't hunt at all. It was all with, with the family. Uh, I, I hunted this weekend for one day, but then it came back, you know, a day earlier than I usually would. And it was Christmas tree celebration, you know, getting all that up yesterday, all this week, family, all next week, family. Um, so we go through seasons and I try to balance out the tough times with the the times when I am more available. And that's how I'm trying to work it out and figure it out. Um, but it is a learning process, no doubt about that. Yeah. So, I mean, how long have you been doing Wired to Hunt? When did you start Wired to Hunt? I started it in the summer of 2008. Okay, 2008. Very much as like a, yeah, but I, I want to qualify that just a little bit. I started it ran it as a blog for like two, three months. And then 
went back to school. This, this was my senior year of college. Finished off my year of college and basically didn't do anything with Wired to Hunt through that period. It was just like a little fun thing I did to scratch an itch. It was the fall of 2009 that I restarted it and actually took it serious. So really from the fall of 2009 on, that's when I've been like balls deep in it ever since. Okay. So Wired to Hunt, the book, all this other uh, stuff that you've done to create the Wired to Hunt brand. I want to talk a little bit now about self-doubt and facing adversity because I've, I, I have a very strange way of self-doubt and these thoughts creep into your head like, what am I doing, man? I'm not built for this. I can't do this. And I have, I have my own kind of strange way of coming out of self-doubt. But I want to know about how do you get self-doubt and how do you fight it or combat it or beat it? Hmm. Yeah. 2000% yes. Huge. A huge amount of self-doubt. Um, but I also have a strong sense of self-confidence too. Um, they're around two different things, I guess. I have a lot of doubt around will people like what I did? Will people like me? Will people think this is any good? Will this be disappointing? Um, so, you know, absolutely felt that all through, even like in my first day job, when I took like a, my career in technology right out of college, I always felt like I had this, it's called imposter syndrome. Have you heard of this? Um, basically there's this common thing that a lot of people deal with where they just feel like even if they are, you know, wildly successful and, and working for a great company or something, they'll always feel like, they don't belong or that it must have been a mistake that they were here. So I always yeah. thought like someday someone's going to tap my shoulder and say, oh, hey, it was a mistake. You got a job here. You're, you know, I'm surrounded by all these brilliant people. And I always felt like, how did I get here? Um, so with Wired Hunt, same thing. Um, I definitely had self-doubt around, you know, you know, for years it was even simple things like killing a deer and like having credibility from a hunting standpoint. People think I'm an idiot. People think I'm no good. Or if I made a mistake, I was worried to share the mistake. Um, there were times, you know, later on, like for example, this whole time through this book, can I actually get this book done? Is it going to be any good? Then when it was kind of done, then it's, oh my gosh, I'm worried to even put it out there in the world. It's not going to be as good as this person's book that I love or this person's book or that book or this book. And what if it's horrible? And, uh, what if I'm just going to embarrass myself by putting it out there? Um, so there's all sorts of fears around that. Um, with, you know, as, as wired to hunt has become a part of meat eater, me being put in front of this huge audience, there's been all sorts of self doubt about people's thoughts about me and, um, all sorts of criticism from this person to that person. People think I'm not interesting or people think I'm uh, dry as a lame white to hunter, dry as a popcorn (laughs) fart. Um, So the more and more you get put out there in front of people, the more and more criticism comes. Um, So that's caused all sorts of um, internal strife at times. But I've I've had three things that I've fallen back on that kind of helped me push through it. Um, Number one, while I have like my whole life had issues with self-doubt around like, will they like me? Will they like this? Will I fit in? Will I be good enough? That kind of thing. What I've never doubted and what I think has helped me is that I've never doubted that I can do the work and push through it. I've always believed that if I set my mind to something, I can achieve it. So I I always fall back on that. Um, Will they like this? I don't know. 
but I know that I will not stop working until I do the best job I can do. So that's something that when it came to like quitting my day job and going full time with Wired Hunt, for example, there was all sorts of worry about it, right? That was a scary thing. Um, but I told myself, you're going to do this and you're not going to accept failure. Failure is not an option. Now, plan A, you know, running Wired Hunt full time and doing what you're currently doing, maybe that won't work out. But then you'll go to plan B. So maybe you'll take a part time job working for someone else too. Or maybe you'll work at a, I don't know. I don't know what those things would be, but I was decided if A doesn't work out, I'll make B work. And if B doesn't work out, I will make C work. But somewhere in here, I can I can find a way to pursue my passion and chase this dream. I'm not going to fail. I'm not going to let it. I'm not going to accept failure. So that's something I've fallen back on. Um, number two, I've fallen back on, and this, these all kind of tie into each other, but it's, we talked about this last week, actually, when we did a Wired Hunt podcast. And it's something that I've found pretty important in my life. It's it's learning to discern between what you can control and what you cannot control and letting go of the stuff you can't control. Um, so when I look at something like, again, let's say the self-doubt around the book, all I can control is how much effort and time and love and energy I put into this book, doing the absolute best work I can. What people think about it afterwards or what the reviewers say or how many people buy the book um, or what people think about me after reading the book, I can't control that. So why waste my emotional or mental energy worrying about that? Um, so I, I'm, I try to fall back on that, and that helps a lot. And then finally, when you're, when you're stuck in the mix of this self-doubt or worry or stress um, or feeling bad about yourself because someone didn't like your thing or said a bad thing about what you do or who you are, anything like that, I try to fall back on gratitude. I try to remind myself of all the things I have to be thankful for and, and how good I do have it. Even though if this one thing isn't going well or if this one thing didn't work out the way I wanted to or if this one person thinks I'm a dork or whatever, um, just try to take a second to think back on how blessed and lucky I am. Having a kid really changed this for me. Having a, having my son, having a family has put a lot of things into perspective for me. Um, so the book could totally flop. People could hate it. Um, but what's the worst that happens? The worst thing that happens is that, yeah, my writing career does not go the way I want it to. But I still have the coolest son in the world. I still have the best wife I could ever ask for. I still have a house. I still get to wake up in the morning and, and see these people I love. Um, that's not bad at all. So reminding myself of those three things often helps me deal with self-doubt and criticism and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Those are, those are three very good things. And I'll just quickly share. I have kind of a, a strange way of, uh, approaching self-doubt and approaching when someone, you know, cause you have, if you go to iTunes and you read through your comments, you have all these five-star reviews and then you got a couple, uh, same, you know, wired to hunt, same as nine finger chronicles and, and sportsman's nation. You got these, these one reviews or these one bad things, uh, these bad reviews that someone's like, oh, Dan Johnson should hang up the podcast game cause he's a douchebag or whatever. Right. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. You know? And for me, I have these internal conversations with myself where I say, you know, that guy's right. I am a douchebag. I am a piece of shit. I am uh, not good at what I do. But then I say, but now I'm going to prove this guy wrong. And I'm just going to go harder at it 
it's almost like motivation through self hate. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I call myself weak and I call myself uh, and it almost like, it's like I have this internal conversation where it's like, I have one, the weak Dan Johnson is telling another version of Dan Johnson that he needs to hang it up and quit and go back to the cubicle life. And then the other one's like, you're going to have to kill me before I do that. And it's like the right now in my life, that guy is winning the, 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 he's motivating me to do what I do. So I have kind of a strange way of like talking myself up and motivating me. But every time it's like the negative energy in my life is feeding my motivation. My motivation just eats that up every single day. So anything in my life, whether it is, you know, the kids, like the kids are ornery all day long and I don't get the time to work on uh, what I'm doing. I, the next day when I do get it, it's just, I go harder and faster and stronger. And uh, for every minute that I don't get to do it, that next minute that I do is almost like double or triple or quadruple the energy and passion. And, uh, you know, like I said at the beginning here, this doesn't even feel like a job right now, what I'm doing. And I, I'm so jacked that I get to be in a brand new office that I built with three other people. Uh, and the, the, where I'm at now in my life, and it, it just, it, it doesn't even seem real. So the question I have for you is, um, have you come across a time where, where, where you felt like wired to hunt has become stale or it, it's become, uh, like you have this feeling like, Oh man, what am I doing? Like, what do, what do I need to do to, to, to change the direction or refresh it or, uh, you know, or maybe even with the book, you hit a, uh, a, a writer's block or something like that. And you're just like, man, I need to do something different. Yeah, I definitely have um, various points in my career with Wired to Hunt and different things. I will find uh, myself reaching some kind of mental plateau of sorts with the work. And you wake up in the morning, and when when I started feeling like I was losing that feeling you described of just being jacked up to do this stuff, um, that's when I knew it was time for a change. And usually for me, that change is that I need to take on a new challenge. Um, if I'm stuck doing the same thing for too long and not pushing myself in some way, I usually find myself starting to feel like that. So, you know, for example, one of those periods led to me starting the podcast, right? Wired Hunt for the first four years, I think, was just a website and videos. So I was like, you know what? We need to take the next level. How do I, how do I push myself, push this thing? How do I re-excite myself? Um, it was starting the podcast. And then at one point, um, you know, it was... I'm trying to think of what another good example of this was. Well, there's another period of time where I was thinking, okay, what's the next thing? Where do we take this? Uh, what's that next challenge to take on? And and I made the decision, you know what? The next big thing I want to do is write a book. So I, I remember I was just in the car with my dad this weekend. We went up to our cabin up north. And I was telling him that some number of years ago, like three years ago or four years ago, whatever it was, 
we were driving together up to the cabin, just the two of us, having a conversation about this very topic, about my career, about where things were headed, about how I was feeling about things, about what I wanted to do next. And I decided on that car that on that car drive that, you know, this year I need to do the book. I've I've had this idea that I wanted to do. I've dabbled with it, but I need to just I need to write a book. I need to it's like the scariest, most daunting project I ever think of. Um, seems really, really hard. I don't know where to start, but I need to do it. I need to figure it out. I think it's something that maybe I won't get a book deal, but if I don't get a book deal, I'll just self-publish. I will just taking on a project like that will be such a learning experience. It will force me to grow so much, will re-excite me and make me think about new things. Um, I'm going to do that. And so I did that. Um, you know, enough, a year or two later, whatever it was, um, you know, the next big step for me was where does Wired Hunt go next? And I started thinking about wanting to make a larger impact and being able to scale what I was trying to do and try some new, exciting, different things and, and the opportunity to, to take Wired Hunt and become, um, a part of what we're doing with Mediator that was presented to me. And I decided like, that's scary. That's risky. That could totally be a flop. Um, all this work I've been doing, you know, uh, it was, it was a huge risk to take that and, and to join someone else and put my baby in the hands of someone else to a degree. Um, but I decided, you know what to do, to, to sometimes to do something that makes a difference or that matters or that's, that's fulfilling. You have to j- jump off the cliff. You have to go for things. You have to push yourself past what's comfortable. Um, and I decided this was another one of those moments where if I keep doing what I'm doing, just the same old, same old, it's going to get stale. I'm going to plateau. Um, this is another way to force that next step. Um, and so I did that. So that is often my solution to that feeling is taking on the next challenge, pushing myself in a new direction. Um, and I've yet to regret one of those pushes every time, maybe it doesn't turn out exactly like I expect, but you always grow from it. You always learn something from it and it usually takes your career in a new place. That's, that's better for it. Um, so yeah, that's, that's on my mind a lot. Yeah. So failure, I've failed a lot in life. Uh, and it's one of those things where you kind of, it's, it's a defining moment in life when you when you approach or when you, when you have uh, failure and how you come out of it. Right. And th- this is a question that I always like to ask when we talk about deer hunting. Uh, but the context for this episode is a little bit different because we're not necessarily talking about hunting. So when you fail, how do you come out of that? And if you have a, maybe a specific example of uh, maybe career or personal failure that, uh, maybe broke you and how you healed from that or, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think it, it ties into a lot of the things we've already talked about. And I probably take a little bit more of an approach, uh, like you do, as you described how you handle self doubt. Um, that's kind of how I approach failure. Um, I am okay with failing because failing means you, means you tried. And I don't think you can ever do anything worth doing unless you try try new things, try this thing, try that thing, go, go, go. I'd much rather put myself out there and try things than sit back and just do the one thing that's easy and comfortable and never risk failure. So I've, I've accepted and I'm okay with the idea of failure. So taking on this book, for example, um, probably odds are it's going to be, odds would be it's a failure. The average book sells less than a hundred copies. The average book never gets put in bookstores. The average book out there, you know, never, um, 
uh, there's a whole bunch of different metrics, but most people that try to write a book fail miserably is the main point. And why should I possibly think that I could be different? But I, so I went into it knowing that, okay, probably this thing's going to suck. <laughs> like, or at least the odds <laughs> say it. the numbers, the numbers say that it's not going to be everything in your wildest dreams, but you got to try. Cause if you don't try, you're never going to know. You'll always regret not having tried it. Um, and if you fail, that's okay. Build from it, grow from it. Um, there's another book that I recommend. It's called the obstacle is the way. It's by Ryan Holiday, and it's all about – it looks back in history and examines all these different examples of very, very successful, influential people over the course of the last few centuries or millennia really um, who have dealt with tremendous adversity and those that look at adversity as an opportunity and harness it and build off of it, those are oftentimes the people that are most successful, most fulfilled, most happy and, um, you know, make a difference in the world. So, so I look at failure as, okay, that's a learning experience. That thing didn't work out the way you wanted to. There's no use. Uh, this is something I come back to again and again. There's no use, um, spending any more mental energy moping about that or feeling bad about that. Um, that does not no good for you. So I, I let myself feel cruddy for, for a little bit because that's human nature. But as quickly as I can, I try to have a self-talk of sorts where, you, okay, that's water under the bridge. That happened. There's Again, it goes back to what you can control and what you can't. I can't control what happened. So that I, I failed. That is the reality of it. So now I'm not going to spend one more minute or at least as few minutes as I possibly can get my – you know, very human, imperfect self to do. And okay, now what do I do next? That's what I can control. What's the next step? What do you learn from this? What do you build off of from this? How do you take that failure and flip at the bird and say, you know what, screw you, screw that thing. I'm still going to achieve what I want to achieve. It'll just have to be a different way. Or I'm still going to get this podcast done. It's just going to be, have to be, I'm going to have to work that much harder or try this different option. Um, so I definitely look at those failures as opportunities. Um, cause if you, I'm just not going to let something define me or stop me just cause it didn't go right the first time. Um, not to say I don't fail. I do. I fail a lot. Not to say I don't feel bad about it. I do. I just try to minimize that period as much as possible. As quickly as I can move on from it, I do. And I think that helps. Um, so that could be missing a buck. That could be, you know, putting out a video and a bunch of people think I'm an idiot. Um, <laughs> it could be someone telling me I'm not good at something, whatever. Just like you said, okay, maybe that was true. Maybe it wasn't as good as I wished, but I'm going to show you because I'll do it better next time. And this is not going to be the end of my story. Sweet. Sweet. That's a good way to handle it, man. Uh, I, again, self or uh, hate talk myself into motivating. Hate speech. <laughs> hate speech. Not outward, but inward. And then that person's like, all right, get up. It's just like I almost relate it to my mom. Uh, I've told you 700 times, make your bed. Why isn't your bed made? You got to make your bed. You know, and I never made my bed. Right. And then she's like, you're not going anywhere until you make your bed. And then eventually you make your bed and then you just, it, it fits into your routine. 
every day and now you're making your bed and then you know <laughs> she's she's mad at you because you did something else wrong right and and mm-hmm. that's how i talk to myself and that's what that's what works for me man i and uh, it's almost funny sometimes where uh, i laugh at myself it's like you you dipshit look what you did fix it you got to fix it and then i go and fix it right and that's how i handle the the mistakes it's a little awkward but anyway <laughs> <laughs> but i think it's i think it's good that you yeah. found like your way to do it right and i right. found my way to do it and i think i think the moral of this or i think the the biggest takeaway of of all this is I think what the most important thing is for someone, it's not actually what your tactical way of achieving that is. It's simply allowing yourself the mental space to think through these things and to figure out what your process is. Because I think a lot of people just go through life just reacting to stimuli. Like you just go through life doing the job that you got because you were told to just get a good job. You got a job and you do it. And then it's everything that happens in life is then just a reaction to something else has happened to you. Something else has happened to you. Um, I think, and I don't know, I'm young. I don't really know what I'm talking about. I'm still figuring out as I go. But what I'm gathering as I'm experiencing life and as I try to consume as much knowledge from other people as I possibly can, it seems like if you if you flip the script a little bit and stop just reacting to everything that comes in and instead proactively develop a plan for going through life or like, okay, these things are going to happen. I'm going to have a mental plan for it. I'm going to hate speech myself into being better, or I'm going to remember that, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to take on this new challenge and it might fail and it might not go well, but you know what? I'm going to remember what is good or I'm going to take that and use that as an opportunity. Like having as goofy as it sounds, like having some mental space, taking some time in the morning to think about these things or sitting down before going on a big hunting trip and taking 10 minutes to think through, okay, these are the things that might happen. Here's how I'm going to try to take care of it. I can do this. This is what I'm going to do if it doesn't go right. Um, waking up in the morning and journaling, journaling what you, I don't know, it just we just get in this crazy blur of life where it's go, 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 go on our phones all the time, watching Netflix. There's so much shit out there that can just like kind of consume your time and your attention that it seems increasingly rare that we get actual time to sit with ourselves Absolutely. and, and, and think through why we're doing things and how we're going to do them. Um, so trying to carve out some time for yourself in that way, I think is, is helpful. So for me, I've started to try to do like a, just like a five minute journaling exercise in the morning. It's, it sounds kind of silly. Um, but I think it is helpful. I I sit down and I I say, okay, these are, it's, it's a little thing. It's called the five minute journal. It's got some pre-wrote, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Basically like answer these couple things every day. So what are three things that would make today? Great. Um, what's something that, uh, what are three things you're grateful for? Um, then in the evening you come back and you, you say, okay, these are, these are two amazing things that happened today. And here's one way I could have made today better. Um, so like, that's just one example of a little thing I've started doing that just kind of forces me to think through these things and to, to be a little bit proactive and to also then be proactive about processing what did happen. So what can I learn from today? Um, how can I be grateful? So it's a small thing. It's a stupid little thing, but I think maybe it goes back to, how do you eat an elephant? How do you write a book? How do you kill a big mature buck? How do you start a podcast? How do you build a business? You can't do any of those things with a snap of a finger. 
you can't do any of those things with some huge, momentous, grand gesture. The only way you can do any of that stuff is a tiny step today and a tiny step tomorrow. And so what I've tried to do is find ways to take those tiny steps every day. Yeah. Yeah. So you send the book in. They ask for edits. You edit. This goes back and forth for a while. And now you have a final copy. The final copy has been submitted. It's off to the publisher. You get it back. And there's like this, I'm assuming there's a lull before it hits Amazon or it hits the shelves or whatever. What's going through your mind at that point? So it's it's a combination of some of the things we talked about already. Um, there's a tremendous sense of accomplishment. So having, like when I got to see the first physical copy of the book, and I'm holding a physical copy of it right now in my hand, it is probably the single most tangible representation of a, of my work that I have ever been able to touch and see. Um, so much time and energy and worry and stress and, and love and energy and passion all distilled now into a thing I can hold in my hand and say, this thing, you built this thing. You did this thing. That was so daunting, uh, so intimidating. At times, didn't think it would get done, didn't know how you could possibly do it, but here it is. So incredibly fulfilling to be able to sit here and look at that book. And a great reminder, um, if I'm ever feeling stressed about something or feeling down about something um, or bummed about something, seeing that on the bookshelf is a huge reminder to like, hey, you, you can do it. You did it. You did something really pretty darn cool. Um, so that's an amazing feeling. Awesome. Uh, secondly, though, also self-doubt. Um, so you did it. You made this thing. What if nobody likes it? What if people think you're a simpleton? What if people think you were wrong? What if people think you suck? Um, there were certainly feelings like that. Um, once it started getting into some people's hands and I, I kept on waiting for like the other shoe to drop. Like you'd, you hear good feedback. I kept on asking my editor, like, do you really think this is good enough? Do you think I should, ch- I feel like we need to change this or change that, or maybe I should do this or do we think about this? And she's always like, no, I think it's, I think this is, I think this is great. I think this is good, blah, blah, blah. And then like send it to, um, the publicist. And then she writes back and says she really likes it. And then the, like my agent was like, yeah, I really like it. Blah, blah. And I kept on thinking that they must not have actually read it. They're just too busy and they're just telling me <laughs> they like it. <laughs> um, and then, but, but gradually enough people have, you know, have been reading it now and, and sharing some positive feedback that I'm feeling like it's not horrible. At least I'm, I think it's pretty decent. Um, I still, though, I'm so self-critical, um, that I know there are still things like, oh, I wish I could have changed that. I wish we would have explained this better, or I wish I would have qualified this more. Um, but uh, the more people I've talked to that have done something like this, the more you hear that I think that's the case with most authors and most creators even. I mean, creative, create a film, create a podcast, write a book, whatever. I think we're always going to wish it could be a little bit better. We'd wish it could have been just a little bit different. We wish we could include this or that. Um, but at some point, you just have to ship it. You just got to put it out there to the world, do the best you possibly could at that time, and then put it out there for the world to see and – and love it for what it is, I guess. So this thing's out there. I put every bit of my heart and soul in this book. And it's probably not a perfect book, but it is the best I could do as I was at that time. 
And I think from, you know, my hope was that this book would really educate people about how we came to have public lands and what we need to do to keep them around. And I hoped it would entertain them and inspire them enough through the stories of my experiences in these wild places to hopefully go see these places themselves and to speak up for them sometimes as well. And if the book does that for even one person, I think it was probably worth all the time and effort. And, uh, and I think I can, you know, stand proud and, and look at that book as a success. So yeah. that's, that's where I'm at. I think. Awesome. So you've climbed the, the, the book mountain, so to speak, you're on your way back down to the valley below. Is there another book in your future? And do you have any ideas what it's going to be about? Uh, great question. One I've been thinking about a lot. Um, absolutely. There will be more books in my future if they will have me. So, so do I want to write another book? 2000%. Yes. Um, like I said, I think it was, it was the most challenging thing I've ever done, but also the most fulfilling of all, of all the things I've been involved with. Um, this has been the most special. Um, and I think partly that's because it just takes such a, nothing I've done required a greater part of me to get it done. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, but this took the most of me, every little bit of me to do this. Um, and it's also the four, like I just, I'm a book nerd. I love books. Books have impacted me so much over my life that, um, to be able to create something like that, um, just is, is overwhelming. So point being, I would love to write more books. Um, if I can get a book deal, I absolutely will be. So hopefully this book is a, is enough of a success that someone will still want me to write books and I'll be able to do that. Um, what will that be about? I'm not sure. I've been thinking through a lot of different ideas. I don't have the idea yet. I don't think, um, but brainstorming and I do know it'll be, it'll be something to do with the outdoors and it'll be something to do with taking care of it. Um, I think that's kind of the types of stories I'm interested in telling, talking about, wild places and wild animals and how we as humans interact with them, whether that's hunting or fishing or climbing or hiking or whatever. Um, and then in some way, hopefully through whatever future books I write, they can impact those places and animals and activities in a positive way. I think that is, that's the kind of writer I'd like to be. Yeah. Cool, man. So as you're writing this book, you're you're, you're journeying through North America, right? You're getting these experiences on, on this public lands. I want to ask you, was there a place and a time maybe with a person that really stood out to you and had a huge impact on your, on your, not only your life, but your book that, you know, like today I'm sitting in an office in Iowa and I'm daydreaming maybe about another place. Was there a, was there a time and a place and a person that really stood out to you? Mm, Man, that's a tough one. Um, cause I have been super lucky to get to go to a lot of really, really incredible places. And a lot of those places I got to share in the book. Um, I mean, in the book I document some, uh, backpacking and fishing in Yellowstone National Park, some shed hunting and hiking and exploring in uh, the Little Missouri 
national grasslands of Western North Dakota. And we went to the Bob Marshall wilderness in Montana, um, climbing some mountains in the Ruby mountains in Nevada, hiking in Utah, uh, snowshoeing in Wyoming, hunting in Alaska. Um, so there's a lot of things to pick from. I think the most powerful moments within the, this set of adventures were, there was probably two. Um, one was going on this backpacking trip with my dad and my sister um, in the Pictured Rocks National Lakeshore of uh, northern Michigan. This was just a unique experience from a family perspective. Um, I'd never done a trip like that before with my dad. My dad had gone backpacking once when he was 20, and then 45 years later or whatever, here I was trying to take him out to do a trip like that again. Um, and he's significantly visually impaired. You know, he's 60 years old, uh, legally blind, and I was trying to yank him and my sister out into a wilderness area and go for a three-and-a-half-day backpacking trip. That was a hell of an experience. It was challenging. It was a couple times scary, um, but really just a powerful opportunity to share those things with my dad and my sister um, that you just don't get to do a lot. I mean, you get to sit and... If you're, if you're fortunate enough to still have your parents around, it's great to sit there at the dinner table and talk. It's great to watch a movie together. It's great to do whatever. But when you can share time with a loved one in a tough setting, in like a thing that pushes you together, but then also get to share it in, in such a beautiful, powerful, natural landscape, in this case, Lake Superior and the pictured rocks right above it. Um, I don't know. Those are just memories that are hard to top. And, and that just kind of – that whole experience just was a s- tremendous reminder of, of why this stuff matters. You know, just getting to go somewhere like that, do something like that with my dad and sister, bringing our family together in a unique way in such a special place, which is like this is why public lands matter. This is why I wrote this book. This is why you got to keep on pounding on it because if we don't have these places left – where do you get moments like that? How do you get experiences like that? What about my kids? Um, and that was the second thing. When I went to Alaska um, for that hunt, uh, <clears throat> that caribou hunt, my, uh, you know, we, we just recently found out that my wife was pregnant with my son. So that was a whole thing going on in my mind. Like, wow, my life's about to change. The future is going to change so much, and I'm I'm sitting out here in the most unbelievable landscape I've ever seen in my life. Uh, the scale of everything in Alaska is just night and day, two billion times different than anything I've seen in the lower 48. So I'm sitting out here on the side of a mountain looking across dozens of miles of mountains and open canyons and rivers and all the grizzly bears and thousands and thousands and thousands of caribou, and I'm looking across all this. And this is towards the tail end of all the work I've been doing on this book. So I'd, I'd learned a lot up to this point. And I'm thinking about everything that led up to this moment. And I'm thinking about this, this crazy stretch of wilderness in front of me that kind of tangibly represented what we have achieved here in America. And then all of that was overlaid by this new reality for me, which is you're going to have a son in a couple months. You're going to become a dad. And, and as you know, Dan, it totally reorients your whole life. Cause it's not about you anymore. It's about that son or daughter, your, your children. And so I was processing all that while sitting on the side of this mountain, looking out over that view. And so still to this day, when I wrote that last chapter, when I wrote 
my favorite chapter of the entire book is the last chapter. And I wrote that at like three in the morning late. I mean, it was, I was one of those very late caffeine fueled. I don't know what you call it, but there's this idea of, and I don't know if this is something you've ever seen or imagined, but a lot of people think about like writers being, um, you know, this, uh, inspired creation. Like they get there and they have this, this, you know, spark of inspiration from somewhere. And then it just like pours out of them. The book pours out of them. You know, you think of someone like Stephen King or some other incredible writer, and you just think that they have got, they've got something special. They know how to tap into this incredible inspiration and just pours out of them. For most people, and I've, I've studied a lot of writers and read about a lot of people's processes. And for most people, it's not the case. Usually it's like slamming your head against a cement wall over and over and over <laughs> again for two years. And that was mostly my experience. It was just beating my head against a wall, trying to get something half decent out there, but doing it long enough that it eventually becomes something special. The only um, exception to that rule was the last chapter. The last chapter poured out of me like someone just like turned on the faucet and it just came out in in I don't even know how to describe it. It was like a waterfall rushed out of me. And I cried. I was crying writing the last sentences of the book. And it was about my son. And it was about all of this stuff that got me to this point in thinking about the future and my son. And so still now, if I read those last couple pages, um, it still kind of just like gets me. And that is the coolest thing I've ever written to like put a little bit of like my soul out there. Um, and, and it's all because of this reorientation of my life around now the future and my, my child and soon to be children. And I don't even know what your question was and what I'm talking about now, but, <laughs> <laughs> but that was a powerful thing. But that's and, how you answered it. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> What was the question? I, get I don't that? even remember. <laughs> I was just, I was so intent on listening to your words that I don't even know. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But that, that was, that, that was, that was, that was what it was. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you asked what the most powerful experiences were. That was it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that, that was the second powerful experience. And, and then how it still translated to even writing about that powerful experience and thinking about it still hits me. Man. That's good to have moments like that. I mean, and and when when you're, that's probably a win for you it, to to have a moment like that through this process. Mm-hmm. I bet you it kind of made you feel grateful. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's that's an overwhelming sense of this whole project is just just a ton of gratitude that this thing came together and that that um, you know a lot of people. I mean, not even just this book. My entire career. I can have nothing but gratitude, just like you talked about in the top. Uh, I'm just so, so blessed to be able to do what I do and to be able to, to share my experiences and wake up in the morning and and know that I'm going to, you know, be able to do something I love and be surrounded by people I love. Uh, that's, I can never complain about a thing. If someone calls me a dipshit online or thinks I'm stupid or dry or annoying, who cares? I've got the best job and family in the world. I'm so lucky and thankful. Um you know, I, I can't, I can't complain at all. Yeah. That's, that's a beautiful thing, man, to, to be able to live a life like that. And, uh, I just wish, and I'm, I'm very happy in my life right now and it's not because of money. It's not because of possessions. It's because of 
what I, in a way it's possessions. And I mean, by that, I mean my family, my family's not possession, but it's like, I have a beautiful family. I have an awesome job. Sure. There's trials and tribulations that go through it, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Absolutely. That's, that's the stuff that really matters. Um, who gives a shit about a big screen TV? That's right. Yeah, absolutely. So wrapping it up here, what are you most excited about for maybe the remainder of this year and going into 2020? Hmm. Um, when's your next kid's due date? Uh, our second son is due the first week of February. Okay. So that's a big, that's a going to be another game changer in your life. Oh yeah. Huge, huge change in my life. So that's, that's right there on the horizon. So I'm very much looking forward to that in, in early 2020. Um, I'm looking forward to this year, two things, hopefully just getting to end the year with a lot of quality family time, because this has been like a chaotic year. I had that season early in the year where I was finishing up the book. The last couple of months of the year were just nuts as, or sorry, first couple of months of the year were just nuts trying to finish the book. And then the last couple of months have been nuts because it's hunting season and I'm hosting a show and all these things that are new too. They're just taking like a tremendous amount of my time. So that's been nuts. Uh, so now I'm looking forward to starting a season of coming down from those highs and just spending a lot of quality time with my family, being the best dad I possibly can be being there, um, for my wife and, uh, and our second son here coming soon. So I'm really, really looking forward to all that. And then as far as the, the career related things, I think I'm just excited for this book to get out into the world. Um, it, it, it launches everywhere December 1st. Um, so that's when it'll start showing up in all its formats, audiobook, which I narrated, um, paperback, hardback in bookstores on Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, I'm excited for, you know, for this to get out there and, and hopefully, hopefully it be received in a positive way. Hopefully people enjoy it. And, and like I said earlier, my hope is that people will be inspired to go see these places and, and hopefully they will learn something that fills out their understanding of, of our public lands in America. And if, if a few people get that from the book, um, title I'll of the book, stoked. what's the title of the book? Title of the book is that wild country that wild an country. epic, an epic journey through the past, present and future of America's public lands. Nice. Well, I hope it takes off for you. And, uh, we're sitting here on an hour and 15 minutes that we've been chit-chatting. I, uh, it's always good to have you on this side of the wall uh, every once in a while. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, again, man, uh, thank you for, you know, we talk about motivators and things. Um, back in the day, you know, all those years ago when you said, hey, I need a co-host for the Wild Wired to Hunt podcast, you know, that I'm going to say that was a momentum changer in my life or a direction changer in my life. Cause I was, uh, I was doing the nine finger Chronicles podcast or, uh, uh, the blog, but really didn't know what that was going to happen. And then when we did the nine finger Chronicle or when you did the wired to hunt podcast and we started doing that for, uh, uh, however many years. And then I said, you know, I'm going to do the nine finger Chronicles podcast, which led to the sportsman's nation. And I really think, uh, just a nudge or a, a moment in life can change the direction of your life. And I think that was a defining factor in my life. So I owe you a big thank you 
for that. And I say it every time, just, it is a, a, a big moment in my life. Uh, and it led to what I'm experiencing now. So thank you. Hey buddy, you are welcome. And, uh, you, you did the work though. I think I can look to you for inspiration as well, because you're someone who, you know, just snatched up everything life had for you and said, and I'm going to take even more and I'm going to try this. I'm going to build this and I'm going to do the hard work and I'm going to grind it out and I'm going to be a great dad and I'm going to be a great hunter. I'm going to, you know, just never say, say no, never, never say, never accept failure. I mean, you're just someone who is just, just, you got that grind mentality. And I, I find that really admirable and freaking awesome. So, (laughs) so February, kid's going to be born sometime early February, right? Yeah. This might throw a wrench into the shed hunting game, right? (laughs) I was hoping, I was hoping that I would be able to at least shed hunt with you uh, this year, but it sounds like that might not happen, buddy. I don't know. That's a very good question. Um, I did get to go shed hunting still the year that Everett was born. Um, it was shortened trip, but I did go, but with two, that's going to be a whole new ball game. So I don't know. I'm, I'm as of now, I'm making no hard plans for the spring. I'm just gonna, we're gonna play it out and see how things go. And if it seems like, um, it seems like I can get away for a day or two and things are okay, then awesome. But if not, I'm dedicated to being here and being the best dad I can. That's right. That's right. Well, Mr. Mark Canyon, congrats on the book. Congrats on, uh, the, the, the current child, the upcoming child. And, uh, thanks for coming on, man. Hey, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to get to hop on here in the podcast and talk about the book. Thank you so much for that. And, uh, it's, it was fun to get to talk about some different things. Um, I love chatting, hunting with you, but it's fun to kind of dig into some of these other things going on as well. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That was episode 471. Uh, Huge shout out to Mark for uh, taking time to come out on the Nine Figure Chronicles podcast. Huge shout out to all of you for taking time to listen. Appreciate it. Uh, Please go out and uh, give props to the partners of this uh, this podcast. Lone Wolf, Ripcord, Wasp, Ozonics, Prime, and Vortex. Um, also be sure to give the network, uh, partners, uh, props as well. Interstate batteries, a big time supporter of this podcast, Onyx maps, Onyx uh, app and, uh, lacrosse footwear. Um, those make everything possible, uh, along with the, uh, nine finger partners as well. So, uh, kudos to all of those guys, please go out and support the companies that support this. Uh, and then we can keep doing what we're doing and, uh, you guys can have eargasms every single day. Other than that, that's it. Uh, I mean, thank you. Thanks to Mark. Um, thanks to everybody. Thanks to my wife who's taking care of some crazy ass kids right now. And, uh, while I'm in my office here at eight 30 at night, uh, putting all this together, um, uh, I'm grinding and, uh, I'm doing it for myself, but I'm doing it for you guys as well. So, uh, yeah, there you have it. Other than that, man, make sure you're subscribed on iTunes or wherever you download these episodes. Um, leave comments leave reviews five stars if possible also if you're going to be in a tree there's time left this season go get the job done but be safe and wear your damn safety harness we'll talk to you later